There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Today's guest is a former Marine, twice deployed to Iraq. He's a Purple Heart recipient after being wounded in an IED attack. During his time in the Marine Corps, he was deployed to Japan and also was involved in training exercises with the South Korean Marines. Since his time in the Marines, he's worked in the oil and gas industry, and today works as a manager for United Rentals, which is how we met. He lives in San Antonio, Texas. Albert Hernandez, thank you for your service to our country, and welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, it's a great honor to be sitting down here with you today. You've worked and traveled and served our country all over the world. Where did you grow up and what was that life like? Yeah, so I grew up uh, here in South Texas, about an hour south of San Antonio. There's a little bitty town there called Dilly, um, kind of a small 3,000 people, you know, farming community. Um, it was great. I mean, it was a small town um, atmosphere. You got, you know, Friday night lights, football, grew up working in uh, watermelons, summer jobs, picking, you know, doing hay, just all the typical stuff that, uh, that you do in a small town, there's really nothing much else to do. And so, um, you know, at the time, obviously dying to get out, but now I look back on it, I'm kind of happy I had that kind of a upbringing. So it taught me a lot about hard work and those types of things. When did you decide to, to join the Marines? Was there an aha moment or did it come to you over time? And what yeah, time was I, your choice over the Marines versus say the Navy or army? Oh, well, I think, uh, I think I'm a bit of a contrarian by, by, most, uh, by most degree. And so I think uh, at the time, obviously September 11th happened when I was in high school, you kind of just felt like, you know, this is something important that's happening and, and wanted to be a part of the, my generation. And a lot of the guys that were either a year or two above me or older than me, you know, were serving, they're joining. And I didn't know many of them. Uh, that were going to the Marines. In fact, most of them were joining the army. And so for me, it was just a way of like, well, which one's harder? It's like, oh, well, the Marines is. It's like, okay, well, then let me go that route. So that way I can kind of try to one-up everybody. And so there wasn't really um, an aha moment. I think I graduated high school. And then that following August, I got uh, I got shipped out to boot camp. So trying to one-up all, all of your buddies, <laughs> yeah. You know, what yeah. was, what was boot camp Like, did that, uh, one up you? Well, if, it, if there's any kind of an aha moment, Chris, and I, I think that was the one where, you know, you're on the bus, you're, it didn't have really set in. And the second you start getting yelled at and step, you know, on the yellow footprints, then it becomes very real and what you're doing. And so it was a great experience. Um, went to MCRD there in San Diego and boot camp, And, uh, yeah, I think, um, completely culture shock. I think meeting everybody from different parts of the United States and different upbringings and, and uh, extremely challenging, but I think more mentally than physically uh, than anything, because it just tested everything you knew about of what you thought was true about life. And so it was a good, good, good experience for me. So you eventually fought in Iraq. You know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the answers I hear to the question, does a young person, you know, usually a teenager signing up for the Marines really comprehend that the day might come when they're in battle, not only for their country's objectives, but for their very life and, and the lives of their buddies. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I think, uh, I think you're very naive when you first go into it. Right. And I didn't know very much. I've ever, you know, practically nothing about the military when I joined. Um, so I didn't even know that there was, you know, that there was other jobs. Like I didn't know you could be an electrician. You could be, anything else. I just assumed that if you joined the Marines, then you were infantry and you were out there. On the, and that's kind of what I had this, this, um, this envision in my mind of it to be. And then it kind of a book, a bookworm. So I read, you know, for whom the bell tolls and some of these other, um, you know, famous you know pieces of literature that kind of talked about, you know, combat and some of those things. And um, it just felt like a rite of passage. So I don't think anything can really ever prepare you for that. But it almost seemed like a, 
you know, the workup when you're, you get to the unit and you, you already know you're going to deploy to Iraq and you're doing all these training exercises and it's not a, you know, if you get deployed or if you're ever in this situation, it was, you know, it was always when we get in these situations, this is what's going to happen. And so I was very fortunate to be uh, with the unit that I was stationed with uh, 3rd Battalion 1st Marines and a lot of my senior Marines and guys that I, I deployed with that were, um, that were in charge of me were all, you know, either Fallujah veterans or guys, this was their third or fourth deployment. So felt very secure in their leadership and uh, anything they told you like, Hey, this is be expect, you know, this is what's going to happen. Um, you're just kind of trying to mentally prepare for, it, but I don't think you ever really, um, you can ever really do that. I was just always waiting for something. So you were deployed twice to Iraq in 2007. You know, tell us about your experiences there. Yeah, it was, it was a trip. I mean, it was a trip. I don't know if that's a word that you can use to describe it. I think, uh, um, I think it was 90% of it was, you know, we were part of a MU package. Um, we went to operate in an area that was typically um, uninhabited, I think for about a, you know, a year or so. Didn't have really big, you know, military forces in there or anything like that. So, just basic coin operations, counterinsurgency operations, what we were doing, we were given an AO, an area of operation to, to work in and then just ran, you know, satellite patrols and just built a census and, and do those types of things. So I think initially it was very, you know, if I can, it's truthfully, it was very scary because you didn't know what to expect and you didn't know what, um, what you were looking out for, or what am I supposed to be watching for these things or anything like that. And then it quickly became routine you kind of got an objective. Okay. This is what we're going to be doing here. And so it was great. I mean, you felt a big a part of a bigger picture. Right. And then, um, and then really at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of guys in a house, uh, like guys act in a house together. And then you're just running these little operations and missions. And, uh, and then of course there's, you know, there's moments I would say of, uh, of intensity and, and, you know, it, it, it bites back up to you that lets you know that this is a war zone. So I think that that was always kind of a, was a very weird thing to try to juggle constantly. We talk about, you know, the war zone, you know, I know it's right. difficult, but can we talk about the day you're injured? Yeah. So that, um, we were part of a, uh, a major operation. We were supposed to, um, my unit was tasked, our unit was tasked to do an operation in the village and, um, uh, my specific platoon was, was to hold Southern security. Um, and not, we weren't kind of, we weren't going to be a part of the, of the main mission. We were just going to hold the outer cordon to make sure that there wasn't any, um, you know, enemy combatants fleeing the the main area that the, that we were attacking. And so of course, like anything with Intel. So we get to the area that we're supposed to be operating in and um, it, it, you know, it's kind of almost flipped in that, in that sense, we, we were, you know, engaged. We had some, um, we found a pretty large cache of, uh, of ordnance that needed to get disposed of through EOD. And they were having a hard time get to, uh, getting to us uh, with the route. Um, and so I was tasked um, with myself in a 710 vehicle and then a Humvee behind me to, to kind of backtrack to get to EOD and then kind of escort them back in. And, and uh, during that, that retrace back, um, you know, we kind of stopped, you know, trying to connect, make radio contact with them. We weren't able to. And then, uh, you know, my lieutenant in the vehicle behind us was like, hey, push forward probably another 100 yards or so and see if we can make radio contact. Um, and, of course, when we did that, uh, you were struck with an ID that completely destroyed my vehicle. It was immediately set on fire, um, started pulling casualties out of the vehicle, and then we were ambushed probably about, I don't know, time is such a weird thing during that time. Right. So maybe five minutes later, we were at, you know, it was a complex ambush. And so, um, getting the wounded, getting the casualties out, um, egressing, setting up, um, you know, a casualty point. And then later on we were medevaced out, uh, we were heloed out, uh, to Altacate to the hospital there. And then, um, and then we're treated there for, for our wounds. I can't imagine how that day, changes an individual right you know, how did it change you physically or you know emotionally from a brain health perspective what i think you know i grew up in a you know a fairly religious upbringing there in a small town so i think you you know 
there was, I remember there being a point in Iraq that, that I kind of came to the realization or, or maybe just the false uh, confidence in that I was giving myself that, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to, this isn't going to be the, the end of me here. And then um, when you go through that kind of an experience, it kind of, it humbles you extremely. And then, you know, um, and then there's a, I think initially at the time there wasn't, um, it was just more of that, oh, thank God we made this, we made it out of this thing. Um, but then as years progressed after this, you know, and some of the guys that were had long lasting physical effects from that day, I, at least for me personally, I start to look at that and I think, did I not see the road, you know, the bomb in the middle of the road? Did I not, could I, like, was I not paying attention? Was I talking too much to my, um, you know, my side driver, the guy that sit in the front seat with me? Cause I like to talk. So I, I'm sure I was blabbering about something. And so I was like, man, what, what could I have done different? And then, and then you just go down that road, you know, that road of, okay, if I did see that thing, you know, and then I kicked some guys out to go check on it, would those guys have been, you know, injured even worse. And so I think that's what I struggled with for the longest time was not so much the, you know, the survivor's guilt of it. It's just the what if of, um, you know, could this have been done differently in what way? Bring it back to the effects of your time in Iraq later, because, you know, it's so important to our conversation today, but in 2008, you attended scout swimmer school. Yeah. What made you want to do that? Again, that was just part of that. So we were part of a boat company. My unit was. And so during the whole, um, you know, during the whole Iraq Afghanistan war, not a lot of opportunities to do boat packages or do any kind of boat raids there in the desert. So, um, you know, we did another MU package, the military expeditionary unit uh, package, the 13th MU, I believe it was a part of. And one of those requirements is one of the units, one of the companies has to be trained in uh, boat operations. And so that was the company I was a part of and they had different jobs you can be a part of. But again, that's um, okay. Well, what's the hardest one that you could do? And scout swimmers was, was the hardest one you could do. And so uh, the initial, I think the initial, um, uh, like entry into that. I think you had to tread water for like 45 minutes with your hands above your head at the pool. And if you could pass that, then you got, then you got to go to the course to the actual school, which was in Coronado at the Navy SEAL training Academy. Um, and we were there for about two months. Um, and then of, of course, everything is timed. Everything's, you know, you only can only fail twice. So everything was physical, a lot of running, a lot of swimming, a lot of that kind of stuff. And then after that, it was just, was kind of a breeze because then you just wanted to be I don't know I had this false sense of like being a top gun like I just wear these short khaki shorts and aviators and just look cool on a beach in San Diego somewhere with my dog tags hanging off my neck is what it initially what I want to do but of course it's just peer pressure and you know my friends a bunch of my friends were were signing up and it was like well I guess I got to do it too if you guys are all going to go for it so yeah it was by far the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life physically and mentally you know, I've been around a lot of military people, but I've never heard of scout swimmer school. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's fun. It's, uh, but really, I think, you know, then you go, you go off after that and then you do, you know, training evolutions and you do, uh, joint trainings because of that. But most of the time, I think you just hang out at the pool and just fail or pass guys that are trying to get qualified in swimming. So you really do get the opportunity to wear shorts and wear your aerators and just blow a whistle at the pool. So it ended up working out for me. See, dreams come true. They can, yeah. <laughs> I'm just playing back the Top Gun music in my head, thinking of you and insane. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I can, I can totally see that. <laughs> you know, so what was it like for a kid from Texas to work side by side with the Filipinos, Japanese, and South Korean Marines? Yeah, well, each one of them completely different, right? Um, the Filipino Marines was, it, you know, I, I'm, you know, come from a Hispanic upbringing, so I speak Spanish, and so uh, going to the Philippines, that was a little bit of a shock because you know, you're always trying to, I, I always try to communicate whatever with the local populace or how the guys are, are communicating and see if I can find a way to, you know, a, a, a bridge through to kind of make them feel at ease. And I think in the Philippines, I was extremely surprised that they also speak Spanish there. And so uh, that was a, an easy way to knock down that barrier. But again, you can see how much of an influence, um, again, my opinion, but you can see how much of an influence that, uh, United States military has on these, on these different forces that we, that we partner with and we train with because the Filipinos, you know, their boot camp 
we went to the Filipino Marine Corps boot camp in Trinidad um, and Trinidad. I'm sorry. And it looked almost identical to my, to my San Diego experience, um, the way that they marched, the way that they talked to each other. And so, um, doing the cross training with some of those guys, you know, I did deployments to Iraq and being able to do some, some workups with those guys in the jungle, just completely different warfare to completely different tactics. And it was just interesting. It was mind blowing. And I definitely did have some aha moments in that sense, Chris, where you're, you know, standing on a beach. In the Philippines, it's like, how did I get here coming from small town, Texas? Never thought I would ever be out here doing these things. But it's extremely um, fortunate to be able to do all those things with those guys. Yeah, you, you talked briefly about the, the U.S. influence in the military space. Yeah. You know, having, having these, <clears throat> I won't call them tours, but you know, these, these acts you're in, involved in, you know, did that experience change your perspective or, or worldview? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think a hundred percent. I think you get to, um, it makes you question everything, right? I mean, it makes you question, um, you know, your religious, for me, at least, you know, your religious views, what you, what the value is of right and wrong. Some of the universal values at each, each unit and each, I wouldn't say, I would not use this word. So any of my, my Marine Corps buddies watching this, don't be upset, but any, the universal soldier that, that kind of has the same traits, doesn't matter what, you know, the honor, courage, commitment, it's kind of a, there's kind of a threat, you know, a through, um, you know, moral values there with a lot of the military guys. So that was encouraging to see and an inspirational to see, but it, yeah, definitely shaped, you know, the way I thought about everything, you know, and we're not the most important, um, at least I felt like, oh, well, I'm not the most important, um, you know, military outfit that's out here right now working and operating. There's a ton of guys out here doing a ton of work. Yeah, through those different training missions, <clears throat> excuse me, what are some of the challenges you faced and maybe even more importantly, the rewards you experienced, you know, going through that? I think, um, I think that, that the, I know it, it sounds, and I've talked about this before and some of the other things that I've done, but I, I think the the thing that I've experienced the most was just love. I know that that doesn't seem like a, a thing that, that pops out or maybe the first thing that somebody from the military will talk about. And that I know you're smiling, Chris, cause you probably know what I'm talking about, but you, it's amazing how much, um, how, how much you can care about somebody that you know very little about, but just the fact that they're representing the country that you're from means so much. And I think that when I look back on my time in, in the training in other countries, you know, I just remember being very proud to be, you know, a United States Marine. I've been very proud um, to represent my unit, represent my state, but it was just more of that, you know, it's crazy. Like, you know, you would do things for somebody or, or somebody would do things for you and, and it would almost go out of their way, but just because of who you were and where, where you represented, um, I think that's the most I took. It was just love at the end of the day, I think. Hoorah. Yeah. Motivating. No question. No question. So how did that time in Korea square up to your time in Iraq? Did it aid in your recovery or distract you, you know, from the issues related to Iraq? No, it did. So it was a little bit complicated in the sense that I knew I wasn't, I, we already knew that the next deployment that my unit was going to be making was going to Afghanistan. And uh, the guys that were now, no, now I was a senior Marine. Now I was a non-commissioned officer. So the guys that I was training to be the future squad leaders, to be the future um, team leaders, I knew they were going to a combat zone next. And not only that, they were going to a combat zone that that I did I wasn't very you know familiar with. Afghanistan has a completely different terrain than Iraq, or from the area that I was operating in. And so um, it, it did help, but it it made me feel like I had to squeeze every ounce of knowledge. And, and take every training exercise extremely serious because the guys that were going, I knew I wasn't going to be a part of that. And I wasn't going to be there. Um, not to say that my, you know, me or the guys that are in my class, you know, were you know, these battle, battle hardened war dogs. It's just, it's that trust. Like, okay, I'm going to, you guys are going to learn as much as, as what I can teach you and, and pass on from what my senior Marines taught me. But you're not going to have anybody with combat experience going with you on this deployment. So you guys are all going to have to, to tie together. So I think my whole time in Korea was spent doing um, firm base operations, um, counter IED instruction, which I even joked about that. I'm like, why'd you guys pick me to be the counter IED instructor? It's like, Oh, well, you know, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I guess. 
but just teaching those classes and doing the debriefs and, and, um, you know, they had a, a very extensive facility in, in Mount Town, this, you know, this town that was made to look like a city. Uh, and they had cameras in every room. So you could afterwards, you could go and sit in a conference room and, and play back the videos and see and really kind of do a play by play. And so I think taking that stuff very serious and, and really, really helped me um, feel like I was giving back as much as I could with that. And that, um, yeah, I think that was the best part about that was just giving everything I could from a knowledge standpoint. Moving along your timeline takes us yeah. to 2009. You decided to transition out of the Marines. You know, what led to that decision and was it hard for you to leave that part of your life behind? No, not hard at all. <laughs> I think, you know, um, I feel, if I'm being truthful to you, I think I felt like I got out of there, um, you know, very lucky uh, to be able to make it out. And, you know, with the ID blast and, and some of the other experiences that I had in country, I think, um, I was very fortunate. So I didn't want to, uh, as I had tell some of my other buddies, I was done gunslinging. I didn't feel like, I felt like I had done everything I could and accomplish everything that I wanted to accomplish when I was in the military and the Marines. And so got a lot of pressure, um, you know, from my, uh, first sergeant, from my gunnies and from my, my senior enlisted, you know, you should really stay in, you can make a career out of this. You could be really, you know, but I felt like I'd done everything I couldn't. I initially, you just dying to get out. At least for me, I was. Um, and I, the best way I can explain it, Chris, is you know, the military and especially combat facing positions. It's it's a calling. And once that you feel like that call's already been passed, I don't, I don't know what motivated you know or drive that you have to stay there and continually to go out and, and fight. And I think. I think I'd already done all that. And so when I transitioned out and came back home to Texas, I think I had a real hard time at the beginning transitioning in and out. Cause I think it was, um, wasn't so much the routine, the, you know, the respect or anything like that. It was just, I think honestly what I missed the most was the bond that I had formed with the guys that I had served with. And I think that, that, and it wasn't even like a gradual, it was just like a quick disconnect, you know, and now you're sitting back home in Texas and, you're like, well, now what? And so, um, yeah. And so a transition to the oil and gas industry, uh, that's just an industry that we were a part of. Um, it's kind of like a big booming industry at the time there in South Texas. And so quickly got onto that, but, uh, yeah, struggled with that separation, uh, from my team and from my buddies, uh, for quite a bit. So you'd been with the Marines since you're in high school up to that point, correct? Right. So now you're transitioning, you're starting down a new career path. Mm -hmm. you know, had you identified by this point, you know, that you're experiencing any sort of post-traumatic stress? Yeah, I did a little bit, right. I, I started to be, um, at the initial when I was, I mean, I was like 22, 23. I didn't have, you know, some of those, um, you know, some of those initial glaring, obvious, um, inhibitors, right. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't doing any of those types of things, but I could feel myself being extremely aggressive for no reason. I'd have these, you know, I'd have these mood swings or these crying spells for no reason. And I just, thought, I just assumed, you know, this was me going through some of the memories or some of the things that, that I experienced that I, that I was either missing or I was, or I was, you know, finally giving myself a chance to mourn. And I don't, I don't, I kind of just put that off to the side because I just assumed that's what you do. I think, you know, I don't know. I think you, you watch entertainment and you watch movies and you watch some of these things. And you're like, Oh, this is how you're supposed to act in certain ways. And no one's really there to tell you um, some of the things that you, that you're feeling it is legit and you should probably get some help for it. So you're more living with it than, than dealing with it at that point. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've been very open since then about your post-traumatic stress. What is it like handling it and how hard was it? I mean, it was extremely hard. I mean, it took a long road to even want to admit that I, I even had anything. And I think the biggest reason for that was just, again, you know, I'd, I'd only done four years in the Marines and, you know, I did, you know, what I consider to be a very small deployment to Iraq, even though I did have these intense experiences. Um, I just felt like, man, I don't deserve, you know, I don't, you know, I didn't have any major physical, you know, wounds. I didn't have any Thing that I felt like I needed to reach out and ask anybody for help for. I, you know, I figured the VA is busy enough with guys that legitimately need this help. And I don't think that I, I rate that. That's a word you hear in the military a lot, rate. 
does he rate to wear that uniform? Does he rate to wear that rank? And so I didn't feel like I rated to have the feelings that I had or, or the, or the help that I needed to get. So then when did you feel that you, you rated? You know, when did you decide to go and get treatment? Um, I think it was about 10 years after working through United, uh, through United Rentals. Yeah. And working through, um, you know, just being exposed to the Fisher House organization and being exposed to, you know, through, through some of the events at United Rentals and, and talking to other veterans and talking to guys that I respected. And then it just came into more of a, you know, well, why don't you? Like, this is ridiculous that you don't, uh, not that saying that, you know, it's ridiculous that you're not getting help, but for me, it was just like, well, why? I mean, it's just a conversation, Albert. Just talk to somebody. That's all at the very least you can do. And I think, um, yeah, I think just about 10 years it took for me to kind of break that hard-headedness to reach out to somebody. Do you view your PTS as a result of cumulative stress from your time in Iraq or the result of that single event, the ID went off or something else? I think it's, um, I think it's a little bit about, of, of, of everything. I think what I've learned through my time is, you know, there's your brain can't distinguish between this is my military stress. This is my military trauma. This is my, you know, childhood trauma. This is my whatever. I think it was just a culmination of many things that, um, whether it was separation, whether it was ID, whether it was combat, you know, the biggest thing afterwards was just the, um, a lot of my buddies that I had served with or guys that I knew that were, you know, you know, losing the battle to their own wounds and, and taking their own lives. I think that was another part of it that was just clearly there's another monster here um, that we clear, we don't understand. And I think, um, I think all of that was a big culmination of it that made me feel the way that I was feeling. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for the second part of our conversation with former Marine Albert Hernandez. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. 
That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, we are back with Albert Hernandez. Albert, let's shift gears for a moment. I'm fascinated that after the Marines, you go to work for an oil and gas company in Texas. Did you have any experience in that sector before? And how'd you end up going that direction? Yeah, I think um, some of the family, friends, and you know, relatives have worked in that industry. And it's kind of one of those things. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, what I, could, what I would be like the mill, like around town. They, that old, you know, standard, I'm going to go back home and work at the mill. That's what kind of the oil and gas industry is for, for South Texas. And so every, it's either that or you can go be a lineman for a, you know, utility company. And so we went, uh, got into that industry, you know, quickly because um, they're always looking for, you know, young guys with strong backs and, and willing to work 12 hour shifts. And so got into that industry and then um, I just started just working and grinding. So you worked your way up the ladder there pretty quickly, becoming an independent drillings fluid consultant. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Again, I've been lucky enough to where I've, um, I don't know if it's because I just talk too much or what, but, I, you know, I've always had certain individuals or people that, that had a ton of experience in certain things that take a liking to me and then just suggest me or, or, or you know, willing to take a chance on, on me to, you know, to go into this next industry. And I did, you know, after I got out of the military, I didn't, college didn't seem like the best fit for me. Um, and I don't know if I could have, you know, I wasn't that best. I wasn't the best high school student. So, um, I just didn't pay attention. That's pretty much what it was. And so I didn't think I could do the same thing transitioning into the college life. And so this was a great way to, to kind of make a name for myself. And I just figured, you know, what's that Thomas Jefferson quote, right. About, um, about luck. And I'm a big, you know, big believer in luck. And the, I find the more, the harder I work at it, the more of it I have. And I felt like that was my, I just dove myself into working and putting my hand up for extra shifts coming in on my days off, just really, really working as hard as I can. And I figured somebody would notice me. And that's, that's kind of how I got, I got into the drilling fluids part of it. So luck is when preparation meets opportunity. It sounds like absolutely your heart yeah, paid off. Absolutely. What was the training and schooling like for that? Uh, it, again, even though I didn't do very well in school, a lot of it was a lot of algebra, a lot of chemistry. Uh, so essentially you're taking samples of mud and fluid that's used to drill the well. And then you're, it's like taking a, a cake batter and then dissecting it and saying it needs this much sugar. It needs more of this. It needs more of that. And that's kind of what, uh, that's what it was. So schooling of that was in Midland, uh, the company that recruited me paid for that schooling. And so got to go to that and they had guys from, you know, all over the world that were doing that. You know, some of these guys were PhD guys, you know, like, yeah, I didn't do any of that stuff, man. I came from the military and then uh, from the oil and gas fields, but it was cool. Cause I had, you know, I had field experience cause I had worked actually out on the drill sites and these guys had never seen it or worked on it. So got to learn a lot from each other and, and um, you know, I could teach them real world, what I thought or what I knew was what was happening. And then they could teach me the algebra part in their hotel room with a whiteboard after work or after class when I was struggling with it. So that saved about 10 years of education with no PhD. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You talk about dissecting cake fluid or cake batter there. Does uh cake boss, is that in your future or something you're looking nope. part of? No, there's no way. Yeah. Stick to your day job on that. I'll stick to that. So during this time, were you speaking more about post-traumatic stress? No, I think I had already started to kind of, um, you know, kind of already started talking to each other veterans, but never looked or reached out and see, you know, sought out for formal health. And if I'm being honest with you, Chris, I think, you know, I've talked to my pastor and some of the people that I would look to as mentors uh, in my hometown that I grew up with, you know, they didn't know how to, how to treat me and they didn't know how to, how to talk to me about it. And they just assumed, you know, Albert doesn't want to talk about that kind of stuff. So let's not bring any of that stuff up. And it kind of, created this barrier between me and my family and the people that I cared the most about. Cause you're, I want to communicate with you and I want to talk to you, but I don't want to scare you. And I don't want to like make you look at me in a different way. And I think for me, the longest time I, I was just kind of constantly trying to push this image of, of Albert that everyone knew and remembered before I went to the military. And I didn't want that uh, image to kind of be tainted with any kind of like, oh, he's broken mentally, so let's treat him differently. 
let's move ahead. You go to work for United Rentals. What made you want to go to work for that company? We actually used United Rentals at the drill sites. And so um, that's kind of how my introduction to United was. And at the time I was living um, in Phoenix uh, and I was flying back and forth every two weeks to come work in Texas. Um, And one of my buddies from the Marines, my best friend at his wedding, his younger brother was a sales rep for United Rentals. And that's kind of how, oh, I think they're hiring, you know, for, for sales here in Phoenix, if you're interested in kind of transitioning or not having to constantly travel so much. And that's kind of how I got my foot in the door with that. So at United Rentals, you were quickly promoted to manager. It seems a lot of these places, you're a quick learner and a great leader. Do you see a lot of that in yourself? No, not, nah, I don't know. I knew that was the answer. <laughs> yeah, I think I just, I just think I, I work hard and uh, I think I'm a very hard worker. And I think people, uh, I don't know, I think uh, companies like United Rentals that'll look at my military experience as, equivalent as, as college, um, was extremely beneficial for me because or else I would have never been able to work at this company. And so, um, these being able to seek out a a top, you know, 10 military friendly company was just by luck, I think on my end. And so, um, yeah, I think I have, I, I, I definitely think, think I have just leadership traits, but just through hard work ethic, I think. Not a combination of that and military training or just what's that? Yeah, probably a lot of that, yeah. Well, it's, it can kind of be like a little bit of a, a hindrance, I think, sometimes because you in the military, you can be a little bit more like do this and this and this and this. And then you get to the civilian world and you're like, oh, no one cares or <laughs> that way. So maybe you should work a little bit more on tact, I think. So let's have a little fun now of talking about United Rentals. Yeah. Can you talk about being named United Rentals Veteran of the Year in 2017? Yeah. Tremendous honor. Um, very lucky to be a part of that. I think, um, a lot of that, that kudos and that goes to one that United Rentals even has that kind of a program in it. And I think, um, a lot of the work, you know, transition and relocating this back to San Antonio with the company, um, my district management, my region team, the guy, the leadership team really pushed, you know, giving back to organizations and the organizations that, here locally in San Antonio, which is military city was the Fisher house and doing a lot of the work and being introduced to those guys, um, and being able to volunteer as much as we could, whether it was, you know, hosting, you know, spooky bingo at Halloween at the Fisher house or, or doing Thanksgiving or, um, some of the organizations that we were able to be a part of here locally, like, um, you know, the SS American Memorial, where we did a local fundraiser and, you know, built a, built a, a dock, that we call the freedom dock where veterans, you know, with, uh, movement challenges can, can use their wheelchairs and get up to the dock and fish and those types of little simple things. I think that, uh, the power of a veteran giving, you know, helping other veterans, I think really started to open the door, uh, for me, uh, and getting back to my, to my own, my own health. And so I think being even named that, and we were, I was named that after, uh, it was the first year that we named that after another, um, United Reynolds manager that passed away from cancer, who was also a veteran, also a strong leader, you know, um, was a, a real bright shining light for the company, uh, being able to be named, you know, that award that year was named after Greg Shanahan. So the Greg Shanahan veteran leader for the first year, I think was a huge honor for me and, and extremely humbling. Does United Rentals have any expectations of you similar to, I know, like a Miss America, we have to go around and, and get. <laughs> no, um, I'd be all about it if that was the <laughs> Uh, no, I think they just continue to encourage and want you to know that they, you know, they not only do they do they honor the you know the work and the volunteer stuff that you do, but they they want you to they're encouraging you to continue to push that forward, get others involved, and kind of do anything you can to you know to just push positivity and and, and helping and giving back as much in the communities that we serve as a company. We'll talk about your philanthropic endeavor shortly, but. It's through United Rentals that you and I got connected. You know, yeah. United Rentals has been an incredible partner for the nonprofit that I'm involved with. You know, for our listeners who may not follow racing, but should, United yep. Rentals is a major corporate sponsor for the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing Team's IndyCar, driven by Graham Ray Hall. You know, through United Rentals, Graham and his car have carried the Soldier Strong logo at times and has a program called Turns for Troops in which money is raised based on how many laps the car does. This year was interesting with COVID-19. Obviously, the races were shut down early but Indy created their own, uh, it was like a virtual reality game where the, the drivers right. were racing each other like a video game. Yep. Uh, this past season, Graham finished sixth in the final Indy standings. 
Uh, and we can never thank him and his wife, Courtney Force, uh, who's been a race car driver herself for their commitment to Soldier Strong. And I guess where I'm going with all of this is that you and I not only met through United Rentals, but at the Indianapolis 500. You know, we talked about Dan Rose, who's been on the show previously. Can you describe the experience for someone who's never been to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway or the Indy 500? Oh, it was amazing. It was just, I mean, I'm not a huge race fan, but after going to that event completely changed me in my opinion of racing and just the accessibility to all the drivers, to the pit crew, to uh, the people, to not only Graham, you know, and his family and his team, but even his dad and and being a part of all that and and having, you know, one-on-one conversations with those guys was just extremely awesome. And I think, um, it was huge. I mean, you just got to see how big the sport is and how, uh, how much, you know, of an American tradition the Indy 500 is and how important that tradition is. And so I still don't understand why we drink milk, but I, I was, I, I mean, maybe one day I'll, I'll find that out in person, but <laughs> there, but, uh, again, meeting Dan there at the Indy 500, meeting you guys, um, it was just amazing. And I was extremely proud that United Reynolds is part of this and a part of this program, but yeah, it was, it was insane. It was huge concerts it was, it was all kinds of things it was, it was amazing it was a life uh never I've thought been, I'd... i've been told that on race day for the indy 500 that track i believe is three hundred fifty thousand people and makes it the second largest city in the state of indiana on that one particular it. day which is crazy <laughs> i believe it it's crazy <laughs> yeah that was another thing yeah the fact that we got police escort to get to the race amazing if i had to sit in that traffic to get out into the race i don't think i'd have gone game changer no question so you like to volunteer a lot with veterans organizations in texas what does it mean to you personally to be able to do something like that? I just, yeah, I think it's extremely important. I think, um, you know, again, I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier. I had some vet, you know, some fellow veterans and, and brothers of mine that, that, you know, lost their battle to their own mental health struggles. And I think you start to realize and you start to analyze some of that stuff and you're saying, man, I, if I could have talked to him a little bit more, if I could have, you know, just told him I loved him a little, you know, whatever the case may be. And I think um, just looking locally, you can see that there's opportunities to give back. And I think having these one-on-one conversations with some of these guys, um, asking open-ended questions and just listening from somebody that, that also served, it was also in country, I think goes such a long way for some of those guys. So um, yeah, if you can just the ability to help anybody just by simply listening, I mean, I don't have a ton of skills that I can do and I'm not trained in any of this stuff, but just to have a conversation, I think goes such a long way. And I think that's why I do it. Uh, cause I get a ton out of it for myself as well. No, I like how you mentioned, you know, locally and it's, it's, you know, we know there's a, a national campaign to, to reduce and end, uh, veteran suicide. And, right. you know, if you think nationally and act locally, it just makes such a huge impact and it just really spreads right. Even the right analogy, but like wildfire. And so absolutely um, appreciate you doing that time. Uh, you know, and as you're doing this volunteer work, are you seeing a greater willingness among other organizations to address and, and talk about post-traumatic stress? Well, I think it's, you know, we started something here at United Rentals called Stomp Out the Stigma or Stop the Stigma when when talking about mental health and and particularly, you know, veterans and men's mental health. Uh, Not only only that, but part of it from, you know, from the area that I operate in. But I think the more you work with, especially in my experience, some of the local organizations or some of the local businesses, um, it's not that it's not in their... um, you know, it's not in their focus, but it's just one thing that you kind of forget about, or you just assume that this is, you know, a lot of people just assume that, you know, uh, well, that's what the, the VA is there for. And that's what some of those other things, but I think collectively, like you said, we, if we all pitched in and helped a little bit, um, it, it can go such a long way. And I think a lot of those local companies and organizations, the second that they get shown some of these, you know, statistics and meet some of these people, then they're, they're all in willing to help in, in any way that they can. And what more can we be doing to understand post-traumatic stress? Like you said, something that most people keep close, close, you know, to the chest, close to the vest. Right. What can we do as people that may not see signs or may not know the signs to, to, to be help? I think, um, I don't know. I think it took a lot of, um, it took a lot of encouragement from my family, um, from my military, you know, Reynolds family and a lot of the veterans that I worked with in some of the organizations. I think, um, I think just, just, you know, first admitting that, um, of course, the veteran that's in your family and, of course, the person that served in your family is going to be the different person when they get back from anything. And I think just realizing that it's okay that they're different and it's okay that because why wouldn't you 
be changed remotely from going through a combat zone, of course you'd be changed. And so I think um, just accepting that and, and, and loving without judgment, I think is the first step. And then just listening as much as you can um, and not giving so much advice, but just a year, I think goes such a long way. So let's talk about your other volunteer work. And I, I love this, this part of what you do. Yeah. You also, you also work with horses as part of the healing process by helping out at the Satellite Equestrian Center, yep. which offers therapeutic rides for children with developmental disabilities. How does that therapy involving animals work? Um, so again, that was just something different. Um, I have two children with, um, that are on the spectrum that are autistic. And so just trying to look and learn a little bit more about how, you know, some of the different avenues of therapy that, that could be available. And, and so of course, just looked at here locally, what are some areas that I can get involved in? And I saw that they were always don't know anything about horses, don't know anything about therapy, but I know I can I can shovel, you know, manure and I can clean stalls and I can do whatever that's needed. And I think just being a part of that and being, um, I like a lot of veteran, you know, volunteer organizations, you just show up ready and willing. Uh, they're more than happy to take your, your sweat equity a little bit there and, and put it to work. And so that started as a way for me to learn more about different therapies for my children. And then it quickly turned into, um, well, they do this with veterans. They do this with everybody. And it's amazing how the connection between animals and, and, uh, and humans is so powerful. And I think you get more out of that, or at least I do. You know, anyone I know who is involved in volunteering always says they get more out of it than they put into it because the rewards <laughs> yeah. are just so terrific. What's it like to work with those kids and seeing the smiles on their faces when they get on that horse? It's amazing. It's such a quick, it's such a, an instant change. It's almost like the second they're in the saddle and the stirrups, there's just this switch that they go in, you know, kids that would normally be, um, you know, not listening to commands or unresponsive to certain therapies. Normally just the fact that they're on this animal and this creature, it just, it's amazing to see that mental and the, you know, those kind of nerves just start to fire up and you can see they're responsive and they're acceptable to, to commands and things in different parts of the therapy that they do. And so, um, yeah, it's just amazing to be a part of that and to see that. Um, and again, it puts things for me, it puts things in perspective where it's like, man, uh, there's other problems out there and there's other solutions that we have, that we can be a part of, um, that we might not know about. Do you see benefits or results with that approach that you might not with other therapies? Yeah, I think, um, again, I think this, there's a strong connection um, between animals, whether that's not, not only just equestrian therapy, but there's also, you know, volunteering at uh, animal shelters or anything that can kind of put you outside of the normal realm, I think, uh, I think can definitely help you. And for me, it's almost like, uh, it's like, you know, your dad going outside hours and just cutting the grass forever. Like, why is he always out there? I think this is the same thing with the animals for me, the horses, they don't talk back They're You know, I mean, you can just care for them and, and uh, they're like big puppies. And so for me, I think it's therapeutic. It's a way to kind of just vent a little bit without needing anything. We've talked a lot about your volunteering, but what about your family? Can you talk about them for us? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. I have four beautiful kids. Um, they're great kids. I got two of them uh, from my first marriage and my other two uh, from my last marriage. And they're both, you know, again, I, I think that's the true measure of any kind of, um, you know, or hope of any father is just that, you know, your kids turn out better than you are. And these kids are by far um, much more, you know, intelligent, loving. And I think that's the biggest part of it is just having fun with the kids and, you know, seeing how they interact with each other. And especially my, my two older kids, how proud I am of them to um, the way that they interact with their, their brother and sister that are on the spectrum. It's just amazing what the power of love um, can do and, and we can heal. And so I think um, I'm very fortunate and lucky to be their father for sure. It's amazing how much children can surprise us at times like that, man. So how big of a support system are they? Yeah, exactly. They save us. Exactly. How big of a support system are they for you? They're a huge support system. I mean, they're the, they're the driving force for why I do what I do and why I'm so determined um, to be successful and to work hard and to be, to try to be some sort of a, you know, a positive role model for them. And, and hopefully, you know, they can look back when they're older and say, you know, 
my hope is they, you know, either their own children or they want to, you know, mirror what I've tried to do for them and try to do better for the kids. But yeah, everything I do, you know, my kids color, everything I do in my life. And so continuing to, uh, to try to make them proud, I think is, is something I'm, I'm aiming towards. Awesome. Something to strive for. No question. Absolutely. So Albert, we have just a few minutes left. You seem to be quite the outdoorsman. Yeah. With the pandemic going on this year, has it limited you or has it been a great excuse to do more of that? It's a great excuse to do more of that. I mean, as, as, as socially as you possibly distance as you can, but you'd be surprised how many, uh, you know, there's a ton of national parks, ton of local state parks um, that not only, you know, they're open during this pandemic, but also give great perks to veterans and, and combat veterans. Uh, and so being able to go out there, reconnect with the, with nature and just go out and do like a, uh, you know, this, the older, <laughs> I'm in my thirties now. So trying to be like a 20 year old doing a 20 mile ride, you know, ruck didn't work out like the way it usually did uh, whenever I was in my, you know, in the Marines, but just to get out there, sweat, be a part of nature, no headphones, no music, just, I think just that in itself, I, it was great, is great to do. And so I, you know, visiting some of the national parks here in Texas, where well, we have big Ben and some of the local state parks. Um, it's something I try to do as much as I can, at least every weekend. Well, the next question is a little bit loaded, especially knowing that a lot of our friends from United Rentals are listening. Of course. What's next for you professionally and as you help other veterans? Um, I think I just want to continue to grow with the company with United and wherever that takes me. I mean, there's a, you know, the the benefit of of working for a company like this, that's so great is there's many different avenues of, of, uh, that you can take on your career path. And I'm very happy where I'm at right now. Um, but definitely want to continue to grow my, my management and leadership role with the company. Um, and then, yeah, I forget the second part of that question, Chris. Working with veterans, any other organizations you want to work with? Yeah. So it started, um, vent to a vet, um, with some friends of mine and, and, and just, just simply just listening and having a conversation. So I just being accessible, um, you know, if you, you stop and think about it, if we can just answer our phone, at least for us. And so it's not uncommon to, um, to have a random phone call at two o'clock in the morning, just to hear somebody out and let them vent through it and, and just talk about some of the things that they might be embarrassed to talk about with their civilian friends and family, I think is something that we're going to continue to, to try to work towards, but yeah, uh, Fisher house, SS American Memorial, been to a vet, um, and some other organizations that we work with all in your spare time. Yeah. All in my <laughs> spare time. Yeah. yeah. Overachievers always. Albert Hernandez. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. And thank you for tuning in to next steps forward. I'm Chris Meek. Be sure to tell your friends and family that we'll be back next Tuesday, same time and same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.